What a morning, right? And that was very Baptist-like. What a morning, right? Okay, a little better. Many of you understand what it is like to have an item on your prayer list for month after month after month. How many of you can relate to that? You just keep praying and praying and praying. Some of you can understand what it's like to have something on your prayer list for literally years. It has been for approximately six years now that the elders have sought the Lord and prayed for a man to serve as associate pastor at Christ Fellowship. As I shared just two weeks ago, the Lord led us to begin a conversation with Pastor Marcus Franklin, and the, really the, the first formal conversation happened right before Steve Nims and I went to Belarus, and we talked then about the possibility of, of filling those shoes at Christ Fellowship. That conversation led to a formal application, which led to a series of interviews with me and also with the Elder Council. We have the privilege this morning of welcoming Pastor Marcus Franklin and his wife, Tiana, and their three children, Everly, Oliver, and Avery. The Franklins, of course, will be available after the service, and you will get a chance to get to know them better and ask any questions that you have of them. The first time that I had a chance to meet Pastor Marcus was nearly eight years ago. Uh, Jareen and I were still rather uh, uh, new and, and fresh here at Christ Fellowship. Hopefully we're still fresh, just not new. And at that time, uh, Jareen and I had the privilege of conducting premarital counseling for Marcus and Tiana, who was an awesome at that time. Do you remember that, Tiana? Back when you were an awesome. And it has been so, so encouraging to see this young couple thrive both in their marriage and also in their ministry. God, as you will soon discover, has given Marcus gifts that I believe and the elders believe will match our needs extremely well here at Christ Fellowship. But more than that, I think that you will soon discover his love for the church, his love for the Word of God, and his love for the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Pastor Marcus has served for the past eight years as pastor of students at First Baptist Church in Newport, Oregon. He is a graduate of Corbin University, and currently he is enrolled in the MDiv program at a Western Baptist Seminary in Portland. I know that Marcus and Tiana and their family will be an incredible blessing to Christ Fellowship, and I trust that we will all be a blessing to them as well. And so would you join with me and give Pastor Marcus Franklin a warm Christ Fellowship welcome this morning. Can you hear me? There we go. Perfect. It's amazing if you push the on button, what happens. Yeah. So. Awesome. Well, hey, good morning, church. Uh, it is just so good to be here with you today. Uh, our church back in Newport, where, as Pastor Dave said, we've been serving for a while, just recently in the last three weeks started to have in-person services again. And uh, there's just nothing that can compare to being in person. 
you know, we, we have been blessed with technology where you can do that at distance, and especially those who are susceptible to this virus, we, we encourage you, stay at home, be safe in that, uh, but at the same time, just the, the privilege, the blessing to be in person, to be with one another, to see faces and talk and hear each other, uh, is just such a gift, and so it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, as Pastor Dave mentioned, uh, Christ Fellowship has been just an incredible blessing for our family. Tian and I, we got married here uh, about eight years ago in November. Uh, I got to preach uh, when Pastor Dave was out of town, I think in 2014. And uh, I went back and looked at what I had preached on, and it was actually Romans. So if you're curious how long you guys have been in Romans as a church, it goes all the way back to 2014. So, uh, but uh, it you know, obviously we, we come up and visit family often, but Christ Fellowship has just been, uh, again, kind of our, our church away from home for the last eight years. And we've loved being able to connect with families here and love to just be blessed as we get to worship and spend time with you. Uh, so we're excited about today and how God has led up to this point. Uh, when the elders asked me to come out and candidate, and Pastor Dave had mentioned that I would be preaching this morning, uh, I started to just pray and ask God to lead me for what I should speak on this morning. And uh, pretty quickly, he answered that prayer request. Um, this summer, uh, we weren't able to meet in person, but for student ministry, we worked through uh, the, the letter of 1 John. And uh, God really used that, especially in my life this summer. Uh, one of the, the major themes of 1 John is just this, uh, this theme of where do we find true life at? Where do we find meaning? Where do we find fullness? Where do we find satisfaction? And First uh, John kind of echoes that over and over and over again, and uh, that's something that has stood out to me and has been an encouragement. And I realize that really that theme is not just in First John, and it's not even just a, a Christian theme, really, it's a human theme, that in life, we want to enjoy life. We, we want things to be good, if we'd rather it be good than bad, we'd rather it be comfortable than uncomfortable, we'd rather it be care or free of uh, concerns and anxieties and have it be, uh, again, just something that is peaceful and filled with satisfaction. Uh, as humans, we would always choose most likely what is easier in those times. Uh, and that hunger for what is the life that I am longing for, what is the life that I'm going to find just contentment in my soul, uh, where do we find that at? Where's the answer to that? Where's our solution for that? And First John answers that pretty soundly, that it's found in Christ. And uh, it wasn't new for me this summer that Jesus is the answer to those longings, but what I had to kind of assess in my heart is how often I'm prone to look for the thing that's going to provide meaning and fulfillment and joy and happiness in things that are outside of Christ. If it's only found in Christ, why am I so prone to try to find that in another avenue, in another means? And this summer's kind of proven just that kind of conviction, the, the kick in the rear end, so to speak, as I, I come to terms with, why would I try to find that anywhere else if it is only found in Christ? And so as I was thinking about this morning, and again, just how to hopefully be an encouragement, how to speak the Word of God correctly and with uh, accuracy, and just what we should speak on today, uh, just those thoughts kept simmering, and, and uh, I just I got more and more excited because if we really can find where life and meaning and joy is sourced in, that's something that is universal for every single person. That helps us in every aspect, not only in our desire to share the gospel, but also in our walk with the Lord to go through that with joy 
each and every single day. And I start to think, and hopefully it didn't come from a place of pride, but I'm just thinking, man, this just needs to be shared. People need to be mindful of it. This is this profound concept. And uh, maybe a little bit of a side note, maybe you've had those moments in your walk with the Lord where God is just, he's just teaching, he's speaking into you, and, and you feel like, man, I, I need to share this with somebody. Somebody else needs to be encouraged by this, and maybe even get an idea, I should write this down, I should, maybe this is a good book idea, or maybe this is a good video that I should make, or outside of spiritual things, you think, man, this would be a great business idea, this would be a great product, this would be a great thing to, to share. And then you really start to realize, Okay, I, I'm not, this is not an original idea or concept. There's other people who have described this or discussed this, and, and it clicked on me soon afterwards that one of my favorite books, uh, Desiring God, I don't know if we have that PowerPoint up there or anything, but uh, uh, Desiring God by John Piper is one of my favorite books, and really his whole theme in Desiring God is this whole concept of we long for happiness, we long for pleasure and satisfaction, and we can only find that in Christ, and we should pursue that fully. And so I like to think Piper stole my ideas, but I wasn't alive when he probably was formulating that, so I'm going to say I stole his ideas in that. But uh, I want to share briefly, though, as John Piper was writing this, just how he framed this whole conversation, because I think it helps set us up for what we're going to see in First John. Uh, so the subtitle of John Piper's book, Desiring God, is uh, Meditations of a Christian, he- or of Christian Hedonism. And uh, his convictions for why he wrote this, why he came up with this philosophy, so to speak, uh, is these five things. Uh, he says, the longing to be happy is a universal human experience. It's good, it is not sinful. The second thing is we should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad impulse. Instead, we should seek to intensify this longing and nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. The third and most important thing, the deepest and most enduring happiness is found only in God. Not from God, but in God. The happiness we find in God reaches its consummation when it is shared with others in the manifold ways of love. The last point is, to the extent that we try to abandon the pursuit of our own pleasure, we fail to honor God and love people. Or to put it positively, the pursuit of pleasure is a necessary part of all worship and virtue. And so as I was meditating on 1 John and preparing for this morning and thinking I've got an original idea and then I reminded that no, someone else had a much better idea that was much more formulated than my own, uh, it just was affirming to me that we have these longings, we have these desires to experience life, life in the fullest, life in the way God intends. And where do we find that at? How do we actually dwell in that type of life? And all of those things kind of, uh, again, God has been working in me, and that is what I I hope to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to really center in primarily on 1 John uh, chapter 5, uh, and key in on verse 12 specifically. Um, But I I like to think this theme of life is something that the gospel writer John really spent a lot of time developing. So we're going to look at a lot of passages from the Gospel of John and 1st and 2nd John specifically where we see him just describe this and unpack this that much more. 
So 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, you see it on the screen, and uh, again it says this, uh, he or whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So a few just immediate questions, observations that we can make from that uh, is this. What does it mean to have the Son? We don't really use that terminology when we talk to people about Christ. Do you have Jesus? We might say, do you have him in your life? Is he a part of your belief system or others? But the actual term, do you have the Son? It's just a unique statement. And so as we dig into that and ask the question, okay, what does it mean to have the Son? It carries really this idea of possession. Okay, and it seems odd to say, do you possess the Son? Do you own him? And theologically, hopefully that raises some alarms that we don't own Jesus. We're not in any position of authority over him in any capacity. And yet this idea that do you hold on to him? Is he the one that you cling to, that you would identify with, that you would confess and believe in? And really, that, that's the idea, and we, we get an idea of what it means to have the Son as we look at some of the other writings of John. Um, you can write these down. I'm going to uh, just kind of read through these, um, and uh, I would argue the first way to understand what does it mean to have the Son is this, that to have the Son is to believe the testimony about the Son and the testimony Jesus provides about himself. So if we are going to have the Son, which consequently results in having life, the first thing is we need to believe what is said about Jesus, what testimony is affirmed in Scripture about Jesus. Um, we see this, uh, again, throughout what John writes. So in John chapter 1, verse 12, uh, John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Some of the most common verses in Scripture, John 3, 15 and 16, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Look at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 31. It says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And lastly, as we look at our, our passage for this morning, uh, just the broader context of 1 John chapter 5, uh, looking at verses 11 through 13. I forgot to print that one out out of all my passages. Uh, it says this, uh, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. All of these passages, again, are equating if something about having the Son results in life, you could almost substitute having the Son with that word belief. We need to believe in the Son if we are going to have life. 
We need to accept the testimony of the Son if we're going to experience the life that God promises to us. Uh, In our world, there's many testimonies of Jesus. There's many things that people would say is true about him, or they would even use statements, well, the the Jesus I believe in is like this. And we have to make sure, okay, what is the testimony of Jesus that we're looking to for our belief? Are we looking to what Scripture says? Are we looking to what our pastors tell us? And I would say you could trust that here, but that's maybe not always the case. Are we looking to, uh, again, uh, our family and our upbringing, our tradition? What is the, the testimony of Jesus that we would believe and hold on to and put our faith in? And again, if we are going to experience life, it's necessary that we believe the testimony that Scripture describes of Jesus. Uh, Second part to this, though, and I want to make sure I I say this carefully, is that this belief in who Jesus is and what the Bible describes about him is a belief, though, that needs to remain and continue. And I I want to be careful in how I unpack that. Uh, If we look at uh, 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, again, John writes it this way. 1 John 2, 23 and 24, he says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Uh, in 2 John verse, or chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So if we're going to experience life, if we're going to have that promise from God, we need to, again, first of all, believe the testimony of Christ. But that belief is not just a one-time assent to facts. That belief is not just uh, uh, something that, and, uh, tragically, sometimes this happens in our Christian tradition, that uh, as a child, they made a profession of faith, but there's been no ongoing belief that's accompanied that throughout the rest of their life after that. Uh, belief that continues and remains is one that is an active faith. That it's an ongoing thing that every day I continue to affirm that this is the testimony of Jesus. This is what is true of him. This is how the Bible describes him. That's what I hold to. That's what I cling to. That's where my hope and my salvation is found in. Uh, The actual verb for uh, whoever has the Son is an active present verb. It's not a one-time action, but it's an ongoing, constant gripping idea that we have the Son. I'm not looking to anything else for where I'm going to find life. I'm finding it in the Son. And one of the reasons why I think John wants to make this clear, and I think it's apparent in here, is that the church that he was writing to in this moment, he was writing to a church in Ephesus when he wrote 1 John. Many who were a part of that gathering had left the church. And they were denying key theological aspects about Jesus. Uh, The big term that maybe you're familiar with is Gnosticism. They had denied the physical uh, presence of Jesus that he could actually take on flesh. Because in their perspective, flesh and matter would be able to be contaminated. 
it would have a negative side to that. So if Jesus took that on, he couldn't be pure and holy from that ideology. And so you realize the rippling effect. If Jesus then can't actually take on flesh, what does that speak to about his death and his resurrection? It didn't literally happen. And we think just if his death and resurrection didn't literally happen, where is the foundation for the Christian faith? And these people who are part of the church that John was writing to had denied the reality that Jesus literally took on flesh, he literally died, and he literally rose again. And so this concept had creeped in, and so we, we see, I already read 1 John chapter 2, 23 and 24, but right before this, John writes about this warning what these people had done. He says, starting in verse 18 of chapter 2 of 1 John Uh, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. In other words, if we're going to go back to that statement that if we are going to receive the blessing of life, We need to have the Son. We need to uh, believe the testimony of the Son. That belief needs to abide and continue. It didn't with those that John is rebuking and calling out and saying they were never a part of our gathering in the first place. When they left, it showed they really did not believe the core tenets of who Jesus was, and they have denied and rejected that. Now, I want to be clear that I am not saying anytime somebody leaves the church, that's the reason. I'm not saying that we make that judgment call. If somebody leaves the church, well, obviously, they don't believe the right things about Jesus. That would be a huge, erroneous judgment to make on an individual. But in this case, that was the situation. And so I think what we can take encouragement is if we are truly a part of the church, we are going to have a belief in Jesus that is going to abide and is going to continue. And so as we think about that, if we are going to enjoy life Those are the things that have to happen. They're a contingent aspect. So we ask the question, okay, if that's what is necessary to have life, what is true about this life? What is true about, uh, again, the life that we get to experience in Christ? Well, in the first place, and I kind of frame it this way, that really there's one foundation with several implications. And the primary foundation is this, that uh, Jesus is life. He's not, uh, again, a giver of life, although that can be true. He's not uh, uh, one who directs us to where we can find life. He's not one who, uh, again, just is an example of a type of life. He is life itself. We look at what Scripture says in the beginning of 1 John, uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. It says this, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, 
and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John starts his whole letter that the person of Christ who they came into direct contact with, he is the life. He's not a life, he is the life. In the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 11, verse 25, uh, Jesus, uh, again, is speaking. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. John 14, 6, one of my favorite verses says, uh, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through And I think why I want to key in on this so much is that there is no life outside of Christ. There's no other source for it. There's no other opportunity for us to have life, to possess it, to be encouraged by it, to enjoy it, unless it is founded in Christ. It just reminds me how we try to find other methods We try so often to look for something to satisfy the longing that we would have to experience the life that we want, and we try and we try and we end up being empty and frustrated and angered because we're seeking, but we're not finding because we're seeking in the wrong source. Uh, My my kids are kind of close to the age where they're old enough now where they're negotiating. Remember, if you've had kids before, when they get to that spot where they, uh, you know, are able to start processing, okay, here's the situation, here's what I really want the outcome to be, so how can I negotiate to maybe have this work out at my advantage? Well, a couple weeks ago, we're, we're putting our kids to bed, and our oldest, Everly, who's sitting in here, I don't think she'll mind me sharing this, uh, is trying to negotiate so that she doesn't have to go to bed right then. And so we, we tell her, okay, we're going to go to the bathroom, brush your teeth, get PJs on, and then it's time for bed. And then we see this kind of grin on her face, and she's trying to say, well, Dad, can we watch a show before bed? I'm like, no, we're going to go to the bathroom, we're going to brush our teeth, we're going to put PJs on, and then it's bedtime. She's like, okay, well, can we maybe just watch, like, a really short video on your phone? Like, no, we're going to go to the bathroom, we're going <laughs> to, and we go through this, and there's a few other times, that, and fortunately, uh, not always this way, but we, we stuck to our guns, and we didn't kind of give in to that. But we can have an established, this is the way it is, and yet we still try to negotiate. We still try to find another way, another method. And the reality is if Jesus is life, there's no way to negotiate that. There's no other source. There's no other foundation except Christ. And it just humbles me because I think, man, how stubborn can I be sometimes that I don't always get that? Or I know it in my head, but in my actual actions, I still am trying to grow in that area. So that's the the foundation. Jesus is life, but what does that life actually look like? Well, obviously, there's a a future reality to that. He is, in the context of this, it's directly talking about eternal life. Uh, Again, if we go back to 1 John 5, uh, 11 through 13, it it becomes very apparent. Uh, This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
And so it's clear, especially in 1 John 5, 12, if we have the Son, we have eternal life. And I want to actually get to the other aspect of life and spend more time on that, but I don't want to minimize the genuine hope that that offers us. And maybe for you, often you think about life in Christ, that's the primary thing that stands out to you. I have eternal life. Uh, Maybe I'm just too immediate focus sometimes that I like to think about the present reality first, but let's just dwell for a second on the eternal hope that we do have in that. That no matter what our situation, no matter what the present reality is that we're going through, there is always a hope that's in the midst of that. There is always uh, anticipation that this will one day be completely perfect. That never's changing. Nothing is going to take that away. Nothing is going to rob that. And what an encouragement when we are in the midst of suffering and discouragement, when we feel betrayed, when we feel like things are hopeless, when we think, man, how is this ever going to get better? That we have that hope. Uh, my, my best friend Ryan, him and his wife are missionaries over in Cambodia. And uh, before he was married, before I was married, we had uh, studied abroad over in Israel together, and we were roommates over there. And uh, one of the vivid memories I have is we both were single for that season, and we were just joking, kind of a little bit depressed about our singleness, and kind of just joking with one another about that. And uh, I remember a statement he made, and he made it in jest, but there was, again, just such an element of truth to it. He's like, well, at least I'm going to heaven when I die. You know, in the midst of his discouragement of the situation, he, he, at least I'm going to heaven when I die. I think if he was trying to be serious in that, he would never use the word at least. He would use the word, man, this might be kind of a crummy situation, but I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm spending life eternally with Christ. And again, what an encouragement and a hope that is for us. The other implication though, that I want to just spend the majority of our time remaining speaking of is just this present reality that we get to spend with Jesus. Okay, that we get to enjoy something with him here and now that is of the utmost benefit and blessing to us. Uh, turning your Bible to John chapter 10. And uh, you're probably familiar with this passage, but uh, uh, again, one of the most encouraging chapters, I would argue, in Scripture. Uh, John chapter 10, and again, this is the, the passage where Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd. He's describing himself as the door that uh, only allows access to his sheep to enter into the fold. He's describing himself as the protector. He's describing himself as the provider. He's describing himself as one who his sheep know his voice. He knows them. And there's just such a beautiful language and picture that he describes But specifically in John chapter 10, verse 10, uh, Jesus says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's a lot of, uh, if you look at commentaries, if you look at other things, a lot of different perspectives on what does that look like to have life abundantly from Jesus. You know, some who uh, I don't think are very good at hermeneutics would take that to think this is a prosperity gospel message, okay? Jesus came to make us 
completely comfortable in every aspect of our life. I don't think that is all what he is saying in here. Uh, Some would say this is almost exclusively still just referring to eternal life. I think there's a measure of that in here, but I think what Jesus is referring to is the life that he intends for us here and now that starts here but gets to last forever. And so as we unpack that, as I was looking at that, I came upon um, a sermon that uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, drafted back in January 4th of 1874. And this sermon just kind of blew my mind. It's called Life More Abundant. And this is purely just that one verse and kind of his uh, takeaways from that. Uh, I want to read his opening, though, and then just summarize some of his thoughts about what does it mean if Jesus provides life abundantly for us. Um, His opening statement is this, Life is a matter of degrees. Some have life, but it flickers like a dying candle and is indistinct as the fire and the smoking flax. Others are full of life and are bright and vehement like the fire upon the blacksmith's forge when the bellows are in full blast. Christ has come that his people may have life in all its fullness. And I love just that concept that life is a matter of degrees. So in other words, we might all be in Christ and we might have a relationship with Jesus. We are saved, we are forgiven, and we all possess life. But how much life do you possess, so to speak? What is the fullness of your life? And are you experiencing the degree of life that we can actually experience in Christ? And I think that's what Spurgeon's mentality is as he goes on in his sermon. And so one of just kind of six statements that he makes uh, as he tries to describe what abundant life looks like. But the first kind of scene he paints here is that if you have an individual who is in the hospital who is sick, maybe they're wounded, they are ill in some capacity, they are alive, but in comparison to somebody who is healthy, there's a different degree in life. That one is capable of doing far more because they are not bound down by the infirmity of again, having a broken appendage or being ill in some respect. And so Spurgeon's mentality is that the person who is healthy has a fuller life than the person who is sick. And we think about spiritually what that looks like for us when we are in Christ, when we have the Son and we experience life in Him, we have healing available to us. We have healing from the infirmities of our sin nature, the the things that have still bogged us down, the temptations that we still wrestle with, the wounds that we carry from the past, the things that just often come into our minds that think, man, I I can't do that. that. That burned me last time. Jesus heals. He heals, he restores, he gives hope in the midst of that. And we get to experience a greater degree, a fuller degree of life as we recognize that. The next scene that Spurgeon paints, though, is someone might be physically healthy, but even the difference between a child and an adult, there's a vast difference in the amount of life that they're able to experience. Now, you might think, you know, a kid running around just is is full of energy, and that's absolutely true, and I experience that every single day of my life. Uh, But for the one who is a teenager, even an adult, 
what you're capable of doing and enjoying, the growth and maturity that has taken place over time, your ability to, again, experience life in a fuller sense is greater. And so his second point is that in Christ, as we mature and as we grow, as we spend more and more time with the Lord, our ability to experience the life he has for us increases that much more. Uh, His next scene is you could be healthy, you could be in a more mature state, but you could be in prison. You could be shackled and bound. You might have life in those other two categories, but you are not free. And so in contrast, the one who is free has the ability to choose and pursue what they want is in a completely different place and they get to experience a life that is completely different. We think about the freedom that we have in Christ. That the sins that have bound us in the past, the things that have been of the utmost temptation to us that we feel so bogged down by, we don't feel like we can overcome when we realize what Christ has provided for us, we are liberated from those. Even the things where we just feel dominated by anxiety, we feel dominated by stress, we feel so burdened to realize in Christ we have freedom over those things. Uh, this fourth scene is, again, being all those could still be true, but for one who has no money, one who has no possessions, one who has no food to provide for their hunger, no water to quench their thirst. They could have life, and yet they could be experiencing that to a much lesser degree than somebody who has provision. And again, spiritually, as we think about the implications of that, we can be satisfied in Christ. What we need, he provides we think about just the core of that. There's, much big, there's a much big difference between want and need. What we need, he provides. And we can have not only our situation provided, but even more so the things that we long for on our heart that we feel, I just am missing out on so much. God provides for us. He satisfies the longings of our heart, the desires that we have, and he positions us in a great place. Uh, last two, quickly, is again, you can experience the the fullness of each of those categories and yet you could be considered an outcast. You could be considered somebody who people love to hate. You could be considered somebody who uh, your name is just, again, used in a derogatory sense almost all the time. And you have no acceptance, you have no uh, relationships to speak of. And you are just, again, an outcast wandering. And yet in Christ, we go from a place where we are on the outskirts to one who is welcomed in. We go from a place where we are, uh, again, literally an outcast. We are without hope. We are without friendship. We are without identity to one where we are now sons and daughters of the Lord. And our identity is shaped by that. Lastly, the last scene he paints is that as we have abundant life in Christ, the ability for us to feel is magnified. This is one of my favorite points in his sermon, that as we grow in the Lord and experience more and more the life he intends for us, we then are able to feel his presence. We're able to feel what he longs for us. We're able to feel a greater sensitivity towards sin. We're able to empathize that much more with those around us. 
that our, our senses in some respects, I'm not trying to be in a mystical way, but our senses are heightened to where we get to be more aware of what God is doing and what he wants us to do around us. And again, even as Christians, each of these things, we always have more available to us, so to speak, that we get to enjoy in Christ. Okay, there's no limit to the amount of joy you can have in the Lord. There's no limit to the amount of freedom you can have in Christ over the sins that would dominate. There's no limit to, uh, again, just the incredible encouragement it is to rest in your identity in Christ. And so we think about the life that God promises. Obviously, there's an eternal implication. But here and now, we get to enjoy the life he has for us. And all that that entails and all that that is a blessing for us. So as we start to move towards the end here, just the, the question, well, how do I actually dwell? How do I live in the life God has for me? I don't know about you, but I can cognizantly be aware of those things. Like, okay, I can know the truth. I can know the reality of that. I can know these things are available for me. But how do I actually then dwell in that and function under the life God would have for me? And I would just leave us with kind of these two things that, first of all, we need to abide in the knowledge uh, that these are reality. Again, we look back at 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 24 and 27, or through 27, it says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. My mind needs to purposely be filled with the reality that this is the life God has for me. All that he's promised is available to me, but if my mind and what I'm filtering into my life, what I'm purposely inputting is not helping contribute to my thoughts dwelling on that, it's going to be that much easier to look for life in another form, to look for life in something else and something lesser. And so our mind, our thinking needs to be shaped by the reality of this truth. Beyond the dwelling in our mind, we also need to purpose to abide in our relationship with Christ. And I'll clarify what I mean by that. Uh, one of my favorite chapters in Scripture is John chapter 15, and I want to just read a, a small portion, verses 4 through 5. Uh, Jesus says this, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When I read that passage, again, I recognize that it's talking about Fruitfulness. It's talking about the ability to be nourished by God so that we can actually produce and manufacture, again, through his strength and his grace, the things that he wants for us. And yet at any point, if we're not abiding, purposefully allowing that relationship to be intimate, for fellowship to be sweet, to be in a place of uh, humility and 
recognizing our absolute need. Again, we're not going to be producing, we're not going to be enjoying what God has for us. And so there's this need for dependency, this need to, uh, again, if I want to have the life God wants for me, I need to be purposeful to have intimacy. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of this book. It's fairly common, but it's one I read several years back, and it's almost just a, a booklet, almost a pamphlet. But it's called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's by Robert Boyd Munger. And uh, it's an easy book that you could read in about seven minutes, probably. Uh, but in that book, again, there's the main aspect that has always stood out to me as, I, as I've read that, is it describes this fictional story of when somebody accepts the Lord, Jesus literally moves into their house. Okay, just picture, okay, what if that actually happened in our life, okay? Jesus literally moves into their house, he takes up residence with them, and he sees every room of their house. He sees what they eat, he sees where they go to bed at night, he sees what they spend the most time doing, he sees what they treasure. All of those things Jesus, again, directly sees, and we know Jesus still sees all of that, even if he isn't literally present in our homes, uh, but the, the story describes it that way. And towards the end of the story, there's just this encouragement that the man who has accepted the Lord and Jesus is now a part of his life and in his home, Jesus is continuing to sanctify him. He's continuing to say, this is a part of your house that shouldn't be here. This is a part of your house that is robbing you of what you can enjoy if fellowship with me is the reality that it should be. And I love just that, that encouragement and just even if that's the main thing you take away, that when Jesus is in your life and if you are a believer in Christ, he is in your life, we need to have fellowship and intimacy and we need to give him control over every aspect of our life. We can't compartmentalize our heart to say you have access to this 70% but not this 30%. And the reason is we miss out on so much that he would desire for us. The life that he promises to us as we profess and believe in the testimony of Christ, again, in some ways we miss out on that opportunity to enjoy it if we are not purposefully, again, prioritizing fellowship with him. So as we, we close with this, the end of 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, I read the first statement and ends with this statement. Uh, he who has the Son has life. Uh, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Just as before it speaks of, there's one source with two implications. Okay? If you do not have the Son, you have death. If you do not have the Son, you are outside of life that is sourced in Jesus. And if you are in death and not in Christ, the implications of that are twofold. There's an eternal element of that just as much as there's an eternal element when we have the Son. That just as Pastor Dave mentioned last week, the eternal element, and we say this with somberness, is that we would be separated from God for eternity. That we would not have fellowship with Him, but instead we would be in hell away from the presence of God. And so to not accept the testimony of Jesus results in that, to deny the reality of Christ and to not embrace him based off what has been revealed to us results in that reality. But it's more than just the eternal aspect. 
I think we see that for those outside of Christ who are alive, who we rub shoulders with daily. There's a lack of fullness of life that we see within our neighbors, our peers, the people we rub shoulders with. But I also think there can even be a reality of that for Christians. Okay, and I'm not saying that you go from a place where you have the sun to where you don't have the sun. That's not at all what I'm saying. But when we function as if the sun is not a reality in our life, and sadly as Christians, we can sometimes do that out of busyness or out of seasons where we prioritize something that we shouldn't, and he is not the focal point of our life and we're seeking other things, we don't have the life God intends. I'm not talking eternally, but I'm talking about the things that we could enjoy if we sought to find it in Christ. And so, uh, the title of the the sermon, and I just want to end with this, church, is do you realize what you have? Do you realize what you have in Christ? That in Christ, we have life. It's not found anywhere else. There's no other option, no other solution, nothing we can negotiate for that. But we have life in him. And when we choose to try to find it somewhere else, we miss out on so much that we would be blessed by. So church, my, my prayer, again, for myself, for us this week, is we would press fully into this idea I want to have the best life that I can. I want joy and peace and satisfaction to dominate my soul. But I know I can only find that when Christ is my first priority. That we would rest in that this week and he would be our first priority. Let me pray. Uh, God, we, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for what your word says. It is powerful and it is such an encouragement. Uh, Jesus, we desire more and more that we would not look to any other source for life. We know that's the case eternally. I think many of us have come to terms with that, but daily in our choices to try to provide a, a glimmer of satisfaction or joy or hope within us, often we substitute, and I pray that we wouldn't do that. Uh, God, if there's anyone here who does not have the Son, has not believed what your word says about the Son, has not believed that they need to seek forgiveness in you and, again, respond to what you did for them on the cross. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in them today. Uh, We love you, Jesus. Thank you again for our time today. In your name, amen. Let's stand.